0: Welcome, everybody. Uh, Today, we're joined by the lovely and brilliant Danny Haifong, which I apologize if I mispronounced your last name. Oh, correct. (laughs) Uh, That is correct. uh, Perfect. Yes. (laughs) Now I have a reason to be happy. Um, So, uh, we have a lovely guest for you guys today, a guest of uh, definitely magnificent literature, which we'll discuss very soon. Um, But as well, could you, uh, Danny, could you give a, a bit of an introduction to
1: yourself, where you land politically, what what you work on, et cetera, et cetera. Sure. Well, let me just say that I am a big fan of the pod and that I feel like I'm in a (laughs) room among legends, a chat room among legends. And so (laughs) thank you all for having me. I appreciate it. So yeah, I can summarize my work. Basically, I am a contributing editor to the Black Agenda Report, which publishes weekly on Wednesdays. Um, I am also... Uh, the host of a program I run on YouTube called The Left Lens, which you can go check out, where I do uh, regular streams and recordings of my articles. I also run a Substack at Chronicles of dot and a Patreon, Patreon.com slash Danny where I put all of my work um, because I'm writing articles sometimes. black agenda report sometimes for cgtn china global television network and sometimes for mint press news so i'm kind of writing everywhere sometimes just on my own Substack, and then hosting the podcast and yeah just trying to connect with uh leftists people who are emerging leftists and i come from an anti-imperialist socialist perspective that's why i really appreciate all the work you're doing because as i said before we got on I believe that there's just a, such a shortage of real discourse, real discussion, real useful discussion on the relevancy of socialism, of Marxism, of, of, of these concepts that I think are just so formative and so important right now and right at the forefront of everything that's going on with the world situation and the class struggle. So, so yeah, that's that's basically uh, me in a nutshell.
0: Lovely, lovely intro. Um, I think uh, the number one thing that uh, people might uh, know you for, from, at least from my side uh, of recommendations, is the great book that you uh, worked on, uh, American Exceptionalism and in American Instance, um, which is amazing reading. I recommend everybody take a look at it. Um, but uh, I have a few questions for you because um, it's very interesting. The, the way you approached the analysis, or at least Marxist analysis, that you approach the questions of uh, American Exceptionalism uh it got me interested in how exactly you got involved, you know, first of all, politically, and second of all, in uh, the writing aspect of things. First of all, writing for the various
1: journalistic sides of things, but also the book that you worked on. Mm. Yeah, very, very good questions. So uh, just a little plug for, for those who want the book. Uh, the easiest way is on Patreon. I actually give it for free patreon.com slash dannyhaifong to subscribers Uh, so whatever amount you give you're going to get that book in pdf form so wherever you are the publisher is not so uh how should i say it's well known but if you live in different parts of the world for example you may not be able to get it so i try to make it open for everybody um but in terms of my political development i would say there are a few ways i look at it There's the overall trajectory, sort of like a diet, like in terms of a historical materialist analysis, like everything that led up to the moment where I started to get involved in politics, growing up in a working class background. I grew up in a mixed race household. My mother's side is Vietnamese, Chinese, French, you know, the whole kind of colonial gambit uh, that was Vietnam um, and, and the ethnic gambit that was Vietnam and my dad's side. Uh, You know, German, Irish, working class, rural, uh, white family. And uh, my father was drafted to the Vietnam War. Didn't meet my mother there, as a lot of people like to assume. But he did go to Vietnam after Tet. And that really, I mean, the United States at that point was uh, very much, the vast majority of people were very much against the war, or at least the continuation of outright military hostilities by that time. And there was already a lot of anti-war activity in the military as well as outside of it by, by that time when he went, uh, it was 1969. And he stayed that he was there for a year and a half. He also got to go to China. He also got to go to Germany. He went all over the place for about a year and a half and really grew a dislike for war. Uh, but he was always a New Deal Democrat, so I kind of grew up in a, a New Deal Democrat household my mother's side always very much more conservative than that uh, she's leans on the side of republican and uh, so does her whole family and growing up in the boston area where i was born y- you know you see things you experience things uh, we i grew up in the period of i'm sure all of you are familiar with this period as <laughs> we've all grown up in it to some degree Uh, the post-soviet union period right so i was born in 1990 Mm -hmm. and by the time i was 10 the financial system the the finance capitalists they had already kind of run roughshod over my family so uh, they had enticed my mother into purchasing all sorts of assets through credit and it tanked Our economic situation, uh, our house was under threat of being taken away. Debt collectors were calling us all of the time. When I was young, uh, we always had to disconnect the phone. This was the time before cell phones, of course. (laughs) So we had to disconnect the house phone just to have some peace in the uh, house at that time. And of course, whenever there's economic strife like that, whenever savings are being blown, whenever there's economic hardship, there's also personal hardship and social hardship. So that created a lot of conflict in the family. And I was young at that time, so I had no real understanding of what was going on. Like, I didn't understand Bill Clinton getting rid of the Glass-Steagall Act, deregulating the credit agencies and the credit corporations, finance capital. And so I didn't really understand what was going on. But as I grew older, growing up in a very racist context as, you know, someone who was identified a lot, especially by white people, but everybody as Asian, Vietnamese, Chinese, whatever. Uh, this is very relevant now with the huge spike in public incidents of anti-Asian racism. But that was my whole upbringing and experience, right? The language of war. Everyone used it. Everyone you know would make jokes about oh you know are you <laughs> did you grow up in a bunker are you via cong you know chink gook all of the nasty racist slurs i mean that was uh, my upbringing at least in terms of how peers understood me and that that really was that really shaped me a lot both that economic experience and that social experience and then seeing how others also experienced that seeing my black peers go through what they go through the joblessness, the police brutality. I mean, I was stopped and frisked a few times, and I was always with uh, people of color at that time. And just experiencing those things growing up really laid the foundations for when I went to college. I went to a pretty expensive school. Uh, I got financial aid, luckily. But uh, when I was in college, it was pretty clear that there was a huge class divide. When I was growing up as a teenager, before college, I could say... I I could be shielded from it because rich people don't really hang around poor people. So (laughs) in the United States. So I didn't really even in my high school, which is a huge high school in Cambridge, Massachusetts, huge public high school, there was still tracking. This is a huge thing in public school system. I'm sure J T is very familiar with this, right? So there's still tracking in the public school systems. And even if you're hanging, even if rich kids are walking your hallways, you'll never be in the same classes as them. You'll never experience the same things as them. There's still race and class divides. What the the fuck? So yeah. yeah, there's <laughs> tracking. So, <laughs> no, seriously, I <laughs> think they're... Like, they're you know if if i can interject for a sec go ahead what is tracking exactly for the non-american audience yeah yeah so tracking essentially is so there's two kinds of class and racial segregation that happens in schools especially the public well the private schools are much more overt in the sense that they literally will just camp out in you know white neighborhoods white rich neighborhoods and admit only white rich kids but in public schools it's not supposed to be like that it's supposed to be um compulsory and everyone is supposed to have a right to go so tracking inside of schools is basically dividing up the classroom system where your levels of education are different and they are different by the so-called sometimes it's measures of difficulty measures of the challenge measures of the academic material. so for example at my school There was something called college prep, CP classes, which was the lowest level where mostly poor students, mostly black students, mostly Latino students, uh, students uh, who struggled a lot in school, they would be in college prep classes. So their material, the material that they were taught, everything that they were taught was kind of tailored towards them. It was a lot more behavioral management, that sort of thing. And then there were honors and AP classes. uh, advanced placement classes, which the advanced placement classes had a test where you could literally test out of college credits. And this is kind of a standard thing all across the country. And it's like a huge boon for the test uh, making corporations, the huge uh, standardized test corporations that uh, really run a lot of the education system in the United States. They essentially make a lot of money by charging fees to students for both you know book materials and taking the test and to be able to take the test in order to get credits so it's supposed to be like this win-win thing but essentially a lot of students from poor working class backgrounds they don't have the opportunity i was able to there's a few that are able to kind of do it and feel comfortable doing it and so i was lucky in that way but uh the class you can see the class realities within it like i took a lot of classes with like all these suburban kids i would have never even spoken to if i were in college prep classes which i was i was, and you could see just down the hallways and in the classrooms what the character of the school how it was being divided uh through this uh through in this way and and that's that's just across the board how it's done in different ways different forms all across the united states in the public school system and um and so that experience right because most of my friends i mean i had a teacher right before this right before i went to high school uh literally tell me to my face like why are you hanging around with with all these knuckleheads like why are you wasting your potential and i remember looking at her being like what are you talking about like these people they the people i'm hanging out with live in my community they you know i'm having fun i'm a kid like what do you want from me and it I still remember that because the knuckleheads I was hanging out with, they were like, you know, black students who were just happened to be poor and happened not to be in, you know, they don't they didn't have the same aspirations. And not even I had aspirations for like college or anything like that. Um, and I was it, it was really my sister's example who she went to college and she was very driven in that way. And so I just kind of followed her and was like, all right, I'll do what she did, I guess. But that's kind of the reality in the U.S. is that, in the mm. school system institutionally it's not done overtly anymore and i get, i know that we're going to be talking about this but institutionally uh, class and race are kind of circumscribed in the education system to funnel future workers future poor people to where they're supposed to go to prisons right we have the prison system literally making beds based on test scores in certain localities in certain states and that is just evident in all of the schools, and so that experience, and then going to college and seeing real rich people, like people in the one percent, or the you know the one percent of the one percent, meeting Wall Street types, meeting these folks who like live in West, you know, the richest parts of Westchester, who live in the richest areas in Massachusetts, in central and western Massachusetts, like the Berkshires, that the, that sort of thing, and meeting them seeing how racist (laughs) they were, seeing how uh, exploitative they were, how they spoke about people, how they spoke about poor people, how they spoke about working people, and their level of ignorance of virtually anything real. Uh, They kept everything superficial, and it was all about just kind of going to college to party so they could then reap the benefits of whatever, their, their... their own wealth and the wealth that they hope to take from others. And so that eventually led to an event where I had a friend who got into a fight and he was an Afro-Dominican black student and he got into a fight in town and was charged with a hate crime for saying the N word. And you know he's from the Bronx and that word is said all the time, <laughs> time in a lot of communities. And so he's charged with a hate crime, which is a very serious charge. And the school and the media and basically the entire town go on this campaign, this like racist campaign to uh, basically frame this as an example of why these kind of students, right, shouldn't be admitted to schools like this, why it's bad for the town, why. Uh, It's very dangerous. And it was made into a political issue. And that's when I started to get involved, started to talk. I started to write in the school newspaper about race, but it wasn't satisfactory because in universities and in a lot of the conversation now about race, there's almost like a negation of class that happens because there's this fear and desire. There's both a fear and a desire, fear of backlash and a desire to make it in the United States where it makes it taboo to talk about class and to talk about power. And I was running up against that in the university system. I was running into people who were so interested. They were like, okay, we'll talk about our identities. We'll talk about privilege, but we won't talk about power. We won't talk about exploitation. We won't talk about these things that were just what real people went through. And so I got super burnt out, disillusioned. And I did a semester in New York city during the Occupy movement at, a labor studies program, and Occupy Wall Street was happening. And and at the same time, Obama was president, and I had voted for Obama when I was 18 years old, three years earlier. And I started to learn through the Occupy movement, through people I was meeting, and also just through my own independent research, that not only was the Obama administration pumping trillions of dollars into the financial system to keep that same financial system that screwed my family to keep it afloat. But it was also spending hundreds of billions of dollars on wars and literally bombing an African country. As I was doing this research and participating in Occupy Wall Street, it was bombing Libya and justifying it on the basis that it wasn't war because American troops weren't dying. And I, I, was just infuriated by this and i started to do more and more research and at that time i was still afraid of communism a little afraid of socialism at least in the sense that i didn't understand it i didn't see its relevance i was a holy bread american bread person you know u.s bread person where those words are just demonized and vilified and i Started just talk to people, and eventually I had people close to me—a former teacher in high school, people in this pro in this program I was in—they were saying, "Hey, look at the people!" Actually, one of my good friends from college too. They were like, "Hey, look at Fidel Castro, look at Hugo Chavez, look at the Black Panther Party." Mm-hmm. And then I started reading those materials, and really got inspired by internationalism and socialism, and. Reading Huey Newton's letter to the National Liberation Front of uh, South Vietnam was a huge thing for me because I still didn't understand where me being a Vietnamese-American person fit into all of this and learning the history of uh, Vietnam's liberation movement, learning uh, the true character of the Vietnam War, not just the U.S. destroyed shit, but also understanding that there was a real struggle going on there and that there were forces in Deep solidarity and a world socialist movement in deep solidarity with the uh, Vietnam struggle. So I then was like, I am a communist. And since then, I have been trying to incorporate that into all my work. And after just a lot of disappointment in the activist world, and I still consider myself an activist and an organizer in my approach, I try to approach all things political f- with that Frame of mind, because I think it's super important to not just be talking, but to also be talking to persuade and talking to, if we're, if we're debating or we're having dialogue or discussion or analysis, that it's for a purpose. It's to win people over to something. Uh, And, and so that's been my philosophy. And so in 2013, when I graduated, I needed somewhere to go. I had been reading Black Agenda Report for a long time. It's a, it's a great publication. And I just reached out to Glenn Ford, who unfortunately died in July of 2021. Uh, but I just started submitting uh, work to him, and he started editing it. He tore me up. He was He's a communist. He was a communist at heart and very experienced, was in the New Jersey Black Panther Party. He was very open and very excited to, you know, whenever anybody presented him with materials that were attempting to understand the United States, white supremacy, empire, class, all these things from a Marxist and revolutionary perspective, he was excited about that. So he helped me kind of, uh, how should I say, streamline my writing, improve it, very subtly just through back and forth through email. And then it was just a weekly thing. And I just kept doing it and doing it because there was always something. I was just super angry. You know, there was always some war going on where there was Libya, then Syria, the Occupy Wall Street movement disintegrated. And there was this long period before the Sanders phenomenon where there was just no talk about socialism. There was no talk about, it. so there was a lot of space to do it. And, I saw American exceptionalism, which led into the book. I saw American exceptionalism, this ideology, as a huge impediment to talking about socialism. I saw it as such a malleable, such a politically uh, useful ideology for the ruling class across the political spectrum to employ, to really sanitize and ultimately suppress what actually has occurred in history and how to actually understand the U.S.'s development over the course of history, how to understand its political economy. And so I was approached by Roberto Cervant, who was a co-author of the book, and he wanted to do a book of essays on this. And we eventually worked it out where it was like we were going to do a joint book where we, where I would draft the chapters. We would talk about the ideas for the chapters. I would draft all of them, and then he would add in sources. He would add in his perspective. But really, we just wanted to hit on both history, current events, And I analyze them from the perspective of, well, what is it that American exceptionalism, what is it that American innocence, the idea that the U.S. is just uh, never can do wrong, even when it does wrong, even when there is horrors and absolute crimes committed by the U.S. systemically, that all that's needed is just an acknowledgement that something went wrong, right? That it was a mistake, as Obama said in 2016 about Libya, right? Like, that it was a mistake, probably shouldn't have done it, but time to move on. And most of the time, the U.S. doesn't even apologize. So that innocence is just embedded in the action, that it's just okay to slaughter millions of people, to erect a mass incarceration, to all these things. It's just okay. And it's because the U.S. is exceptional, and it's because uh, the U.S. has the right way of looking at things in the right way of developing a so-called civilization and it always has and it always will and so that is a huge impediment and I think informs a lot of the barriers and contradictions and errors that we see a lot of even so-called socialists make in the current state of the movement right like a lot of there are a lot of forces who call themselves on the left who support imperialism it's just like why why do you do that and then you see that is because there is this deeply held belief that the United States can be better, can do better, and that imperialism or is, is inherently good. yeah, it is inherently good because you know, and there's this racial aspect of it, well, because it's superior it, it, there is mm. even if there is wrongdoing and even if there are flaws to this thing. That it's better than everything else, and I think that in terms of well, I know we're going to get into foreign policy. That's a huge impediment to actually having anti-war movement, even when people are sick of war. People will still think yeah. that China, Russia, anywhere, go anywhere around their, Syria. Those places are you know centers of barbarism. So even if the U.S. does some bad things uh, around those countries, well, at least it's at least we're not them. At least we don't have dictators. At least uh, we don't have. I, I, People, our, our badness is humanitarian. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> all all yeah, crimes exactly. are for human rights. So that's how the book got started, and we worked for about a, a year on it, and we got it published, and it was great. And, and so you know, I do think it is a very useful primer for how to understand ideology in the, in the context of history and in the context of how to apply an analysis of ideology in the struggles that are occurring historically and, and right now. That's a very, very nice answer and very extensive into your political
0: uh, journey. And uh, you touched on a lot of things that I did actually want to ask about, but uh, if it's okay with you, I'd like to, you know, do a bunch of bullet points that you could give your your answers on. And this is mostly based on the book, um, which, by the way, reiterates a very, very good uh, piece of literature. Uh, I think for most well-read Marxists, a lot of it uh, would be um, uh, not the most fresh reading, but for people who are... Liberals or people aren't that uh, informed on Marxism uh, or Marxist analysis. It's incredibly invaluable, like parenti level um, information, uh, and it's written in a very, very refreshing and and modern way. Very pleasant book. I do recommend people uh, do take a look at it. But I had a one of my favorite aspects of the book um, and your work just in general is the idea of American innocence that the United States can can never do any wrong. Could you build up on that a little bit, please?
1: Sure. So we talk about American innocence as almost like the defensive side. So if you think about the United States' foundational ideology of American exceptionalism, if you think about just Americanism you have the offensive side of it where it's just constant propaganda about how amazing the United States is, right? You had, if you think about Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton, for example, and your Hillary Clinton episode was amazing, by the way, (laughs) that was great because it just reminded me of all the fucking shit that I despise about Hillary Clinton. But we remember in her campaign, the way she responded to Donald Trump was America's already great when Donald Trump said make America great again. So you have the propaganda of, the united states is great whether it's uh, the united states it's values freedom democracy whether it's the economy of opportunity the american dream right whether it's just like liberal striving where e- where people have the opportunity to be inclusive and included in the social system all of these myths about the united states as being the city on a hill then you have challenges to that right because the united states is i mean it's you guys have covered this you guys cover a lot about the cold war Mm -hmm. but even since its founding right you had uh, intense challenges to this you had slave rebellions you had Mm -hmm. africans in rebellion both on the mainland of north america you had the rebellions haiti the successful revolution you had so many challenges to the social order of the united states as a imperialist enterprise and the way that the ruling class responds to this ideologically is by one first of all putting down the rebellions putting down the movements making sure that those do not go anywhere making sure that there isn't some sort of change in power but then there's the side of reform like how do you reform how do you interpret events and so American innocence is is really all about historical distortion. It's about intentional forgetting It's about suppressing the memory mm-hmm. of things like the Korean War for example Calling it the forgotten war mm-hmm. and by claiming it's a forgotten war then that means you can just kind of wash away the crimes and they go away, but they, they don't go away and that's the point of American innocence is to claim that the United States even when it does do wrong that it is worth defending Uh, based upon the interpretation of history, the erasure of historical memory that the ruling class is Mm. always participating in. And so, for example, like in the example with Korea, I had just written an article on my substack about the U.S.'s biological and chemical weapons programs and all the examples of using these weapons of mass destruction on actual people. And Korea was like my first example because it's one of the least well-known ones. And you never hear about this. You never hear about the U.S. literally mm. dropping by air and on foot like beetles and fleas and clams infected with pathogens, infected with plague, infected with uh, anthrax, respiratory, and <laughs> like infected with things that kill people and, and mm. that terrorize people. And because the U.S. is presented in this innocent way, then you also have the other side of it where then those who are challenging that narrative are delegitimized, right? So, for example, mm. what happened in with Korea is that no one believed the Chinese and Korean forces who were saying this, right? And to this day, it's still an alleged thing that happened. But you have a whole report by the uh, World Peace Council. They formed a scientific committee led by one of the most famous scientists in like the UK's history, Joseph Needham. They went to this. They went to China. They went to the Chinese-Korean border. They talked to people. They found huge connections between people's like pathogens, like respiratory anthrax, which was totally unknown to the area at the time. And they found that people were dying of this despite no modern history. And they were dying of this right after handling the infected agents that they just happened to find, right? These things would drop. There would be some sort of event, smoke, Uh, you know, dust settling, all that. And people would go, this is a rural population. They would go and check it out. What's this, right? If you get a box of clams delivered to you, you're like, what's this? You touch it. And people got infected and people did die. And so it's really American innocence that makes that okay, right? It makes it okay that the U.S. could drop tens of thousands of sorties on Libya, displace millions of people after that war and during that war and you know, arm reactionary fanatics who were racist to the core, who were committing like ethnic genocides of African, uh, black African, Libyan populations. But that's okay because Obama can apologize for it. And because no U.S. troops died, then uh, the U.S. doesn't have anything to really answer to. So it's that inherent superiority that then is linked to this innocence of, well, as long as, there is a narrative behind the crime that can justify it, then the United States doesn't have to answer for it. And also, the grand, in the grand scheme of things, well, look at Muammar Gaddafi. He was a dictator. He was a brutal authoritarian, right? He deserved what he got. Uh, even if it's worse now, it was really bad then, so we don't really have to... We don't really have to answer for it. And the same goes for all of the U.S.'s wars. And the same goes also for the crimes that have been committed here, the war crimes against indigenous people, uh, against black people, uh, and and the continuous class warfare, right? As long as the trajectory, even if the trajectory is going southward, which we'll talk about because the U.S. is in this precipitous decline Mm -hmm. and it really has affected uh, how hysterical American exceptionalism and innocence have become in this moment. But even if things are going southward, well, as long as we can express superiority and innocence in the face of these villains that have been created, then there really is no bottom to how bad things can get. And that's really the scary. And I think the most dangerous thing about American exceptionalism and American innocence is it clears the bottom. There is no more expectate. You don't have to have any expectations at all. As long as you believe in the fantasy and then are willing to defend that fantasy, uh, sometimes to the death if we see how people become mobilized into wars over and over and over again in the united states
0: yeah that's very interesting you because you touched on several several ideas there um i think one of the last chapters of the book is about this the ritualization of of american life and culture uh in for example with the military and the flag and the constitution and every other aspect of you know the american civic religion that compels people to either comply or then be heretical from whatever uh, pseudo religious tradition uh, that is uh, the American political experience um, you're a, you're a traitor to the country you're un you're anti-american or something is considered to be un-american uh, whatever that's meant to be and I think that also um, ties in neatly into something that I think many American Leftists and, and, and Marxists, communist, socialists, whatever you want to call them, um, do end up feel feeling at one point or another once they become convinced of socialism and they start discussing with each other. And that's the the um, idea of the ungrateful son of a bitch that, that you, you uh, <laughs> mentioned in the book, which I, think, I thought was very interesting because, again, uh, Yugopnik, for example, and I, we come from different... Uh, Uh, Different backgrounds. We're not Americans. We don't live in the United States. So for us, we've never had the experience of being, oh, an ungrateful son of a bitch for for rejecting some aspects of our country, because it's seen as, yeah, you know, aspects of our country kind of suck, and they need to be improved. I mean, I won't speak for Yugopnik and and, uh, and the former Yugoslav countries, but for Iraq, that's for for fucking sure. And people don't think, oh, you know... And people like in I guess in the former Yugoslav areas or in, in, in Iraq, nobody will tell you like oh if you don't like it here, you like leave. Nobody's gonna be like, Oh, you are ungrateful for this great country, the opportunities mm-hmm. it's provided for you. People just looking at it be like, Yeah, it fucking sucks. <laughs> <laughs> and 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 I think that's really interesting, but Could you also discuss, at least from the American perspective, I think JT can also contribute on this, um, this idea of being the ungrateful son of a bitch for daring, having the gall to basically say, you know what, Uh, some aspects of American society aren't exactly right, we shouldn't be in Afghanistan, we should have housing for all, we should have medical care um why is it that the vast majority of, of politi- political executive decisions are taken uh, almost uh, solely uh, are in the benefit of, of of lobbying groups and multinational corporations and billionaires and whatnot um saying these very basic things will make you an ungrateful son of a bitch but could you could you guys d- discuss <laughs> let's have the <laughs> americans discuss I and mean, then you to just sit
1: back <laughs> thank them you for long. centering us thank you for centering us um uh, y- so, yeah, I mean, we first have to, I think, understand that where that comes from is historically, it's rooted in the enslavement of Africans. I mean, that was the narrative that slave owners, traders, that was a narrative that they created. That was the way they spoke about uh, slave rebellions. It's the way they spoke about runaways. It's the way they spoke about any kind of protestation with the horrors of slavery is that they would they were ungrateful because there was this kind of antebellum sort of very sort of Southern charm way of talking about slavery, where it was like the slaves, even though they are slaves, they have much better lives now, right? Like their lives, the the slave masters take care of them. They're being civilized you know, live in some so called barbaric place on the African continent or the Caribbean anymore. They are here, they are being, you know, taken care of. And so that's where it began. But that's a very useful way of understanding any political situation in the context of class warfare. So for, for the ruling class. And so it's been universalized. And that's a lot of what we talk about in terms of American exceptionalism. It it universalizes and and thus destroys the conditions of society, the understanding of them. So we end up really thinking that our lives are indeed better, right? That our lives are indeed better under uh, these circumstances than they would be if X, Y, and Z, right? If we were living like rock does for example right like there's always another uh, sort of juxtaposition there's always a juxtaposition with uh, so-called quote-unquote savages and so the ungrateful commentary really it really was elevated when Colin Kaepernick sparked this action that happened across the NFL and across the country the kneeling to the national anthem but it really was started and we talk about this in the book because that was a real whitewashing of it by calling it just this kneeling that was happening during the national anthem no the very first action that Colin Kaepernick took was he sat out the national anthem and then he when the media asked him about it he said well i'm not going to support a flag and an anthem and and pledge to it when there's Oppression and police brutality happening. So it was a real political act and that is where the notion of him being ungrateful and of those who for better and for worse uh, took up his cause in their own way that that was really the impetus behind the whole yearning ungrateful son of bitch" that Donald Trump uttered uh, those words when asked about this whole thing that was happening across the United States, where the national anthem was just routinely being protested against in this way. And so Mm. the, you know, this notion of being ungrateful is coming up again, and it comes up over and over again when one isn't loyal, right? One isn't loyal to the dictates of empire and dictates of capitalism, dictates of American Mm. capitalism and Americanism and, Now it's coming up with Eileen Gu in these uh, Beijing 2022 Winter Olympics. She is Chinese. She's Chinese on her mother's side. She goes to Beijing like every summer. But she's a mixed race person. And uh, there's obvious a lot of strange people on the Internet who think of her as obviously white. And so they're very offended that she is participating for china she is actually skiing for china she's a world-class mm. skier she's incredible skier she's 18 years old and she's probably going to sweep every event that she participates in but that act and this was two years ago but now it's coming up because the olympics have started that act of Saying, well, I'm going to participate for China. I see that there's more utility to that for me. For she wants to like inspire young girls. Like there's all sorts of reasons I want to bring cultures together. You know, she has. She's an aspirational young person, and she wants to do something mm-hmm. interesting. And she is being labeled a traitor. She is being labeled as ungrateful. Uh, immediately, uh, U.S. skiers, the corporate media, Tucker Carlson, all of these forces were telling we basically stating very publicly that she's unappreciative of everything that the United States gave her and that's basically what the ungrateful narrative is all about it's all about you need to be grateful the United States has you know they don't say this but the United States has stolen basically everything from most of the world uh, and has plundered the world and created this enormous amount of wealth despite how it's distributed and you should be grateful for all of the opportunities that you've had here because this is the most democratic country. This is the richest country. This is the most superior country. And if you're not, then you should leave. You're not American. Despite the fact that someone like Eileen Gu uh, is uh, both Chinese and American and she has citizenship in both and she has the right to compete for china it's a very common practice across olympic sports actually Uh, there's plenty of people who you know who are from ghana for example they'll participate for the united states because they've lived in the united states they have citizenship in the united states there's actually skiing in the united states unlike or like winter sports unlike in a place like ghana so anyway the aspect of being ungrateful there's a real heavy race component racist component to it and it all serves class interests. It's all about getting people to just shut up and dribble. Kind of like how LeBron James was characterized yeah. uh, by Laura Ingraham when when he started to speak out. I think he started to, I think he called Donald Trump stupid. And he, you know, he was kind of a, a vocal opponent of Trump and supporter of Black Lives Matter and all that uh, the last couple of years. And he was told to shut up and dribble. That, that's really the the impetus behind it it's to to get you to be quiet put your head down and reap the benefits of this benevolent empire and whatever
0: it will it decides to give you Mm -hmm. Uh, i think that also the leads into nice leads nicely into another aspect um I'm going to tie two different parts because they're in, it's in two different parts of the book, but I thought uh, they linked up nicely. Um, the one aspect, which was the lovely dunking on the concept of the American dream and how bullshit it is, which was very pleasant. And then on the other side, the, the idea, or I don't know if you can even say this in English, but the typecasting uh, of black men, successful black men specifically, uh, being linked to white entertainment, um, sports, music, and other related fields. Um, if you want to be a successful African-American man it has to in some way appeal to white sensibilities it can't be success for success sake or based on your merit at some point that uh, intersection with with uh, the dominant I guess racial ideology if you even want to word it that way uh, in the United States uh, has to you know have its say and uh, the, the two points meet nicely where, you know, the United States is such a great country where, you know, you can do whatever you want. You can start from nothing and reach the absolute top, which is complete bullshit. But at the same time, uh, those... Uh, very Americans, of course, descendant of slaves that were forcibly uh, kidnapped and brought onto the the American continent. Um, These people who are forced into ghettos, who are discriminated against at every level, uh, from education to profiling to work opportunities and everything else in their life, um, these people can reach some concept of the American dream that is intrinsically linked to uh, what a a white... um, Producer or, or or record company owner or coach or whatever decides you'd be worth uh, you know advertising or otherwise uh, pulling in some form of, of of income and that's my 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 question to you the idea of of the American dream to you actually since you're American yourself because again me being not American I think you might might agree um, or every every third world person can see it. You look at the United States, you're like, yeah, they're full of shit. There's no meritocracy there. It's as clear as day. But to you as an American and having written this book, what is your opinion of this, of this intersection of um, being a minority yourself and the the claim of, of, of the American dream?
1: Yeah. So as you said, we, we got into this a lot in the book because it's, it's still very important. And I think one of the most important aspects about it is that more and more people just don't believe this anymore because the reality speaks for itself that uh, people of my generation, so-called millennials, their um, their conditions of life are much worse than their parents. Uh, unemployment is rampant. And the fact that most people don't even have 400 U.S. dollars living in a place like the United States, as expensive as it is, as the cost of living as it is, just demonstrates that people just don't have any money and they don't have any prospects that they're going to get any more money. And and that's very interesting given that the whole narrative of what the United States is is built upon this American dream. It's built upon you can start off poor and then you become very, very, very rich because the U.S. is a land of opportunity, we're told. And so my experience... I mean, given the data in the book is very clear that there are huge race impediments to meritocracy, right? Like the average black family in the United States has something like $1,700 as a net worth, which essentially means you don't have any money and you don't have any wealth at all when you're talking about $1,700 to spread across a family in your name. it's It basically means you don't own your car you don't own your home um you don't own anything uh, so the studies are showing that it takes you know if everything were controlled and we know that you can't control capitalism there's no controlled experiment with capitalism it's always changing it's always moving we're communists we but that's what we believe in if but if that if, if if capitalism were static in the united states it would take the average black family in the u.s 226 years to catch up to white the 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 average white family's wealth right like that that just shows there's really isn't meritocracy it doesn't matter about education doesn't matter about your status uh, there will be a vast majority of people especially black workers which will be in a condition of impoverishment and and will not move up and there is no prospects for uh being that boss bitch or whatever that that we're all told we're supposed <laughs> to be right that we're there we're th- there is no elevation in that way and so you know I think that in terms of just how that plays out in, in reality as we're going through I mean it as we're just going through life and how our book applies to that in the overall experience in the U.S. for most people not just black workers but most people most working people is that You know, you start off under already very difficult circumstances, usually debt. I mean, usually it's debt that is holding you back. It's the fact that everything costs way more than the wages that you're making. Wages are stagnant, and uh, the levels of debt that uh, Americans are in is like in the tens of trillions of dollars. So you're already starting at a place where you owe finance. You owe capitalists. You owe people money, and there is interest being collected on that. And so everything you do from just trying to own trying to get trying to get a home, trying to get some sort of assets, trying to get an education, everything is just all about that piling on of debt that continuously, continuously happens. And that's why people are living paycheck to paycheck, because they're owing medical bills. They're owing exorbitant uh debts and, and fees to their landlords and to their uh, into their banks, around their homes. Um, that That's what the American dream is economically. It's like this farce that you're supposed to keep working and working and working as hard as you can to try to reach some higher level and then continuously running into the barriers that capital puts into place purposefully in order to extract your surplus value. And so we describe that in the book through just the data, right? The data that just shows that this is a myth i mean it was that's that was sort of my dad's experience he worked like 35 years and he died with $25,000 in the bank you think oh that's that's okay but that was from a refinance which had already piled on another mortgage onto the house so he died with no money in the bank because that money was lended to him by the bank out of the equity that then expanded the mortgage Uh, even further to an even greater degree. So he didn't have any money after 35 years of working in a union job. You know, like like that, that just speaks to the realities that most working people are going through, regardless of whether you have what's considered a decent wage where you can just get by or whether you are living completely on the margins, which most people are at this point. I think like half of the country is making less than $30,000 per year. And in the United States, you can't afford a two-bedroom apartment with that. You can't afford even a one bedroom apartment with that in nearly every single state in the United States, in every single locality. So that's the American dream. It's a it's a, it's as Malcolm X put it, it's an American nightmare. The realities of capitalist life in the United States are some of the harshest in the world because there is no social democracy here. And the mythology just serves as a way to create a buffer between what people really need and what people are willing to ask for. So a lot of people are just willing to go along with this because they don't know anything else. And because now you're coupled, the now the situation is so dire that people are working so many jobs, working so many hours. And, right, this is like the Bernie campaign was able to riff off of this and gain a lot of popularity. Like people are so, are, 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 are so uh, in, a complete and utter disaster economically they're so desperate that what can you know what what can they demand they're worried about losing the job that doesn't pay them anything right like that kind of precarity is just not really a social when you think about the united states in this american dream you don't think about that kind of precarity or that precariousness right it's like what how, how did that happen after being the top economy in the world after world war ii basically like geopolitically manipulating your way into a top economic superpower status how is it the case that there's all of this wealth stolen from so many different places and hoarded from so many places, and yet you have so many people living in complete and utter misery so so that's uh, the american dream and that's been how i experienced it And, and you know, to see people. You know, I know I have a lot of people I know who college educated, struggling to get any kind of jobs. And then, you know, I, by trade, I was, I'm a social worker, and just meeting so many people who are just completely pushed onto the margins because of whatever reason, because of just generationally, that's just how it is. Because of mental illness, because of uh, super exploitation, uh, whatever it is. Uh, that that experience for like tens of millions of people living in complete extreme poverty in the richest country in the world, I mean, it just really indicts what the American dream is all about. And so we wrote about it in a couple of chapters because we believed that you have to talk about political economy. You have to talk about where this is coming from. You have to talk about exploitation and American exceptionalism says, and the American dream says, no, there's no exploitation here. It's all great. It's all good. Like just work as hard as you can. As long as you do the right thing, basically shut up and dribble, mm-hmm. dribble your way through life, that you'll be rich. Or at least you'll be comfortable. You'll get your little suburban home. You'll, you see it on TV all the time, right? You get this little suburban home. You get this full house kind of life. And uh, you can be like these nice, happy white people on the TV. And now, you know, <laughs> there's some diversity. Yeah. So you can be like these nice, happy black people <laughs> on the TV too. And you'll be, you'll be fine, right? You'll be fine. You should be happy. And if you're not, you're an ungrateful son of a bitch. <laughs>
0: exactly right. Very, very interesting. And I think it ties also to, to, to the concept of the American decline, which I think you finished the book off of with. Um, the very idea that uh, as the United States, despite the fact that it is, like you said, the richest country on earth, despite the fact that it geopolitically monopolized all, so all streams of power – to, towards itself for over half a decade since the end of World War II, um, they are still in decline politically, economically, influence-wise ac- along the world, across the world, um, and uh, more and more people start realizing that hey, this American dream bullshit isn't what it's <laughs> what it's uh, propped up to be. It's it's not a dream. It's bullshit. They're lying to us. Um, and the interesting aspect of this is the future and how it might look like if it will be you know. People see the very fact that the American dream isn't a dream, like it's not a thing at all, um, and that this will rise raise class consciousness. Or on the other end, it might just be like, yeah, actually, the American dream is a thing, but it's the fault of immigrants or minorities or women or et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And that's why the American dream has died. Um, and that that would be the exact inverse. That's the, the, the lack of class consciousness. Um and that's of course where the where the work of the wider Western left um, or the American left uh, needs to be needs to be found. But I think an interesting point that also ties into this, and you also mentioned it in the book, is um, the the woke aspect, the wokeism, and its attempts to 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 uh, co-opt progressive terminology, or progressive sounding term- terminology, to then just funnel it into support for establishment. Uh, politicians and, and and policies usually democrats and how at the end of it they never actually cared about for example gay people or trans people or 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 minorities ethnic or religious they don't give a shit democrats have maintained the fu- biden's maintained the ice camps just like trump did uh obama deported more people than trump did if i remember correctly um but the very fact is you can bring up this image of the you know oh a hip uh, african-american president you know uh he speaks smoothly he's suave he knows uh he knows how to dress um but he'll still drone strike your house mm-hmm. <laughs> you know <laughs> but yeah uh and and uh w- what is your personal perspective on the on the on the wokeification of of
1: american uh establishment politicians <laughs> man a lot of things have changed since this book was written because i feel like when we wrote this book this topic was even still very taboo, right? That liberals didn't want to touch it because they were so enamored by it, and even the right, because we had just come off the heels of the Obama era, they, the GOP, etc., that that kind of section of the right, GOP leaning or just hard right Republican, they talked amongst themselves, and if, certainly if you were in those echo chambers, you would hear all of the racist vitriol coming out, but. Now it's become public discourse, this whole wokeism thing. And it's because of the Black Lives Matter movement. It's because of how institutionally this society, this political economy, this the ruling class has responded to the reemergence of uh, conversation and political activism around racism and police brutality and its relationship and mass incarceration and its relationship. So now it's interesting because when... I've been talking about this for years. I've been talking about this since, you know, before Michael Brown was killed in 2014, right? Everyone now talks about identity politics and use that term, but I've been talking about it for a lot longer than now what I feel like is a main, more mainstream thing in a very disparaging way of talking about it is that when I talk about it, I'm talking about a particular imperialist, project a particular political project of the ruling class where there's this politics of inclusion that we write about in two chapters um i believe it's sev- uh, 17 and 18 in the book where we discuss how the liberal elite the liberal ruling class they have adopted both because their base especially in the democratic party happens to be uh very heavily imbued with black voters, women, labor unions, uh, et cetera, right? That's the Democratic Party base. So they have responded to the struggles of the past with this uh, politics of inclusiveness, politics of inclusion, which is essentially what is called diversity now, right? It's essentially saying that the United States, the Democratic Party in the lead of it, will make this society a welcoming place for everybody. Everybody will have the same opportunities. That's what we're working toward. And we're doing that by giving people comfortable careers and positions of power. And so you will see a face like Kamala Harris, Barack Obama, Congressional Black Caucus. You will have those faces parade around. You watch television. You know, you'll watch Insecure. You'll watch some of these new age programs all across uh, Western and corporate media that show that, hey, look, you can see black people on television. You can see, you know, people of color, Latinos, Latinx, as uh, is, a is term that's used by some now. But you'll see people of varying backgrounds with histories of oppression portrayed now in the halls of power, but without any kind of substantive commitment to actual oppressed people. So that is where this wokeism, as it's called now, really runs into all the contradictions that have morphed into what I think is a very, now a very unhelpful conversation, I believe. A lot of the left, unfortunately, I think, has heard what the right says about quote-unquote identity politics and the politics of inclusion, and has unfortunately said, oh yeah, that's true, it is so unsubstantive, so that means race isn't real, and... We need to stop talking about race and stop talking about, you know, all these like empire and all of these uh, inconvenient things. And we should just talk about class. Right. Like that's the that's a lot of the narrative, how it's shaped up to be and how a lot of responded to it. But in reality, that's that's kind of what the ruling class really wants. It wants us not to remember that actually the United States and a lot of the class struggle that has occurred in the United States has happened on the basis of tackling and addressing and fighting against racism fighting against uh, issues of state repression is- institutional issues like discrimination as you said Hakim like that that has a long history and that has to not only be respected but it has to be understood as very relevant now and so in our book we try to talk about how Yes, we are very opposed and we are very clear that this is the most dangerous form of propaganda, of uh, ideological manipulation that the ruling class has in terms of identity politics and inclusiveness. It is right to be able to neutralize politically uh, the black polity, as we talk all the time, the black agenda, report, to be able to move the most left leaning section of the population to the right. To the point where in 2013, uh, black people were polling higher than white people and supporting the the war on Syria that Obama was about to wage at that time uh, during the whole red line crisis, uh, the whole we're going to maybe do airstrikes and then he pulled back that summer of 2013. That had never occurred in the history of the United States uh, from when it was measurable of people's foreign policy views. Usually it's been black people. Usually it's been Latinos that have been on the side against war because, well, it makes a lot of sense. (laughs) When war is waged against you, you generally don't support war. But by having representatives who look like you, who talk like you, who claim to be working in your interests forward these kind of policies, it can serve the effect of convincing more and more people to follow the imperialist worldview, to follow imperialist policies. And that's essentially what has happened. And it has turned into such a crisis now with COVID and everything that if we could rewrite, you know, if we did another edition or something like that, we would talk about how it creates such a contradiction, such an, that it's turned into an antagonism, really such an antagonism ideologically among people having these debates among people who are trying to understand this, that Actually, the GOP with Trump and uh, and the Republicans on the right, they've really benefited a lot from this, right? They were given so much political ammo to the point where they are now convincing people on the left. They are now convincing that there is a that there is something to their agenda that is preferable to, let's say, the Democrats, when both of them are absolute complete garbage, and they all lead to the same place. They all lead to super-exploitation, endless capitalist plunder. They all lead to the same white supremacist terror. They all lead to the same endless wars. But the Republicans are now saying, the Europeans is saying, well, look at this identity politics. Look at the critical race theory. Look at all of, look at the ways in which, you know, the Democrats are colluding with China and other in places like that to demonize the greatness of America. Look at how they're talking down to you Uh, Poor white folk. You know, like that's the narrative now. And it's been very convincing to then literally whitewash the realities of the United States and to make it that the debate is still confined within partisan lines. It's still the Democrats bad because they're identity politics, Republicans good because they're not identity politics. And then most, you know, or if you look at it more rationally, you say, Republicans are bad because they're openly racist. Democrats are bad because they're covertly racist and they're trying to promote this exceptionalist attitude amongst left-leaning forces. And I think that's where we need to move out of. Uh, and that's that's the challenge, is to be able to dialectically understand this issue and talk about it in a way where we are hitting hard. Like, I, I am not one to hold my tongue about Obama or anybody else who represents imperialism and kind of like no, we do not hold our tongue, but we understand that our analysis has to then be both accurate and understand all of the forces at play, and we cannot allow uh, we cannot allow sort of this weapon of counterinsurgency to work even indirectly. It works indirectly if the if the right becomes empowered, if the so-called far right is more and more empowered by their incompetence, their negligence, and their lies, right, this wokest lies, like, that, ser- that doesn't serve us to then say, oh, yeah, well, Democrats are terrible, and liberals and wokest are horrible, and so, you know, we're not going to also understand <laughs> that the GOP and the Republicans are totally taking advantage of this for their own gain and trying to forward their vision, which was once marginal in terms of mainstream policy, it used to be, I mean, look at look at who George W. Bush was. Look at who these Republicans—they—they they weren't going out there being, you know, uh, talking about identity politics and wokeism and you know how ungrateful people are, all that. They weren't. They were trying to toe the neocon line and the neoliberal line so they could get shit done. And now we're coming into this more chaotic situation where mm. ideology is really everything, and the political program, the policies—they're not going to change. It's just all about how they're interpreted. So certain forces can be weaponized and uh, militarized, really, to support the, you know, the worst of the worst and what we're experiencing now. So, yeah, that that's what we really wanted to hit on, because, you know, you get called racist, you get called all kinds of things when you criticize those forces that have been empowered, uh, like Kamala Harris, when you criticize them and you say, hey, kamala harrison is really the top cop like she like literally calls herself she she was uh, sending letters to black mothers who had true-on children saying yeah we're gonna take you off to jail because your child isn't going to school like that's what she was doing she was building up the mass incarceration state and people will call you racist for that because they want that they they want that status. That status becomes a political goal in and of itself, and that's the danger of of inclusivity. It's, and, it's yeah. yeah.
0: The 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 female the female slash gay um, uh, concentration uh, camp guard. It's, it's that idea. Yeah. Um, exactly. Of course, the, the point of it. Uh, and the point I think in case uh, I do this a lot apparently where I I state the obvious, but <laughs> I just do it because just in case somebody misunderstands. None of us here are criticizing, for example, Kamala Harris. Because of her her, her um, ethnic background, our criticism of her is political, ba- politically based uh, about the fact that she is like that uh, I mentioned. She considered herself to be the top cop. She took a uh, direct role in the uh, inc- incarceration issue that exists within the U.S. Um, and that's a point to criticize her. If she was white or or uh, any other ethnicity, it doesn't really play a factor in our analysis. Unlike, for example, the other side the non-marxist side um some liberals kind of do this as well but it's the those a bit further right uh who do it who do it a lot more where their primary point of criticism starts at the person's race and then the politics is secondary uh while with us it's primary with the politics and the race part plays no uh role whatsoever but uh, i think this this also ties to something and it can be one of the last points we discuss before we get to something a bit more you know uh, fun <laughs> uh, about uh, you know what what we would hope from the future but uh, uh, something I also liked that you mentioned which you know it's kind of it, you know it's common sense when you hear it but you don't really think about it a lot and it's the idea of quote unquote respectable media how if something is mentioned in a BBC article, all of a sudden it makes it respectable, Um, despite the fact that, as Len has uh, spoken of extensively, um, all uh, press, all journalism has a class background, and uh, in capitalist countries, the quote-unquote free press is just uh, a a mouthpiece for the ruling class to basically dictate what they want, to try to change public opinion however which way they want, Um, and that's clearly evident by, for example, every single time it's uh you know uh let's let's build up to a war every uh from the right end of the spectrum to the left if, if, whether it be fox news to cnn to the new york times or other publications all of them end up drumming uh, uh or, or uh, what's what, playing the drums of war what the fuck ringing the drums of, i don't know what you're beating say. the drums <laughs> for beating the drums there you go American. thank you beating <laughs> my <Yeah>. one contribution <laughs> 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 Thanks, JT. <laughs> Fuck, I'm stupid. I'm sorry. Yeah, exactly. Beating, end up beating the drums of war. It's actually hilarious. Uh, seeing the the. Um... Uh, news titles ahead of the Iraq War, and it's like, yes, we should bomb Iraq. Why? It's a good idea to bomb Iraq. Iraq needs to be bombed. <laughs> same with Syria. Same with uh, literally every single time. It's it's you know, or Libya. Every single time, it's uh, the United States and the ruling class have decided that yes, we want to uh, destroy another uh, country. Um, the 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 uh, entire. Um, "Quote unquote free media in the United States just kind of toes the line and and follows the the, the uh, edict that uh, is passed down from from the ruling class." But could you could you comment a bit on on the idea of respectable media, if <laughs> yeah. if my question doesn't fucking uh, <laughs> bore you too
1: much? No, it's it's good, it's good. The, I mean, it's corporate hegemony. The this idea that the mainstream press the big corporations the big six the and then all of their subsidiaries you know all of the um, you know all of the offshoots the NBC's the CNN MSNBC the CNN's that they are respectable New York Times I mean it it really does speak to the level of just corporate capture over the over this sector of society i mean now there's more understanding of it because i think once it because i think once the corporate media became so concentrated following clinton's deregulation of 96 and what has happened after that uh, with the um, telecommunications act of 96 after there was just full-scale monopolization it's become quite clear to people that yeah, this 24 7 news cycle, uh, the newspapers, all of them, they're all owned by the same companies and they literally spew the same message empire, empire, empire. And all of the topics are basically partisan and all about what is in the interests of rich people, what is in the interests of wealthy people, what is in the interests of donors to the major political parties. And the media is now split like that, right? So you have MSNBC, Lean's Democrat, Fox News is obviously a Republican. But the respectability of it all is all about just the brand. I mean, at this point, uh, there is this war, and we talk about it in the book, there's this war on quote-unquote fake news, right? You hear it all the time. You hear it up until this day. The establishment on all ends are talking about fake news, fake news, fake news, right? When the far right is talking about it, they're mainly talking about it as like the establishment which they claim is disparaging them as fake news, uh, especially around COVID or whatever else, uh, usually around elections, right? Because it is all about partisanship in many ways. And it started with the advent of Donald Trump and the rise of Donald Trump because this respectability that the corporate media had wasn't really challenged because at that time, the two political parties were stable before the rise of Donald Trump, right? You had the the Obama era, which created unprecedented social peace in many ways with various cracks and fissures, Occupy Wall Street, Black Lives Matter. Those things happened under Obama. But in terms of the political legitimacy of the state, there was really unprecedented social peace, even if there was disillusionment, which led to the 2016 moment, uh, there, there was a really difficult challenge, as we just talked about, with the whole woke uh, identity reductionism, politics of inclusion. There was a real barrier for the left to do anything about the Obama era, and it it made the converse, political conversation in the United States very stale because you couldn't, you literally couldn't touch the state at that point. Didn't matter about the kill lists, the deportations. Didn't matter that Obama was expanding out-and-out out wars from two countries to seven, right? And that that didn't matter. You still couldn't criticize Obama. So that uh, really helped the corporate media a lot kind of skate through. But then when 2016 happened, you had Hillary Clinton backed by the corporate media. The literal strategy was the Pied Piper strategy of the DNC. used the corporate media to disparage Donald Trump literally giving him billions of billions of dollars to promote his message, but disparage him over and over and over again. And then that would help Hillary Clinton win. And it did not work. And, of course, you know, the electoral system is complete BS. And Hillary Clinton did win the popular vote. But popular vote doesn't matter in U.S. politics, U.S. election, in U.S. uh, presidential elections. So uh, that's a reality that people kind of have to swallow and understand She lost by the way that the game is played, despite a billion-dollar war chest from Wall Street and all of this negative coverage for Donald Trump. And it created a panic, right? So right up around the time where there were probably already inklings, and we didn't see it, I don't think. We couldn't really see it on the outside, but probably the establishment saw it. You had Obama going to Germany and saying yeah, the internet is the problem. Fake news is the problem. We need to we need to clamp down on it. And that's what's been happening. and it's created a much more, it's created a much more visible dichotomy in this age of information and in this age where the media is becoming both more concentrated in fewer and fewer corporate hands. but at the yet, at the same time, it's becoming more and more, decentralized in terms of how people are able to access it you have more and more people consuming social media and consuming independent media through that and so the respectable the way that the corporate media tries to play it is that they they are the arbiters of truth and you see this on all questions you see this especially around foreign policy especially around things like uh, COVID-19, for example, it's like the corporate, what the corporate media says is the truth and you're not allowed to criticize it from the left or the right. And the useful thing about this is that it creates this horseshoe theory, which now, unfortunately, I think, is having a real uh, negative effect in the United States where you have the corporate media and, of course, the intelligence agencies. You had Russiagate. Now you just have this general broad policy of targeting... All alternative media as like Russians or Russian duped or whatever it is the State Department just came out with a report on this but it's been ever since 2016-17 there's been a blatant attack censorship on people like myself and most people can see this on YouTube it's experienced. the algorithms are constantly changing to make it harder for left ideas to be certain left ideas at least real left ideas socialist ideas to be seen, you see it on Twitter, you see it on all over, right? How there is an intentional kind of shadow banning and suppression of things that we're talking about here on this podcast. And I think that is creating this dichotomy of respectability and non-respectability in the media space for more and more people to see and this horseshoe theory that's created out of it, this like well, the far left and the far right are in collusion to destabilize the United States on beh- at the behest of Russia and sometimes China, sometimes Iran. Right? It's like pick your uh, pick your uh, evildoers from abroad. That then has the impact of formulating this struggle as not a class struggle anymore, but an ideological struggle, which then breeds kind of strange ideas of like, now we need to unite everyone, the left and right need to unite and, and we can fight this corporate censorship through that. And so the respectable media piece is very important. It, it the media in the United States is completely discredited. I think something like 13% of people have trust in, in, in the so-called respectable media at this point. It's absolutely, the, the bottom has fallen out. No one watches CNN, MSNBC, uh, reads the New York Times, unless you are already convinced from prior generations, new, the, the new generation, And a lot more people who are angry just don't, the vast majority of people. And that has opened up opportunities for independent media and it is now being censored and it is being attacked as Russian propaganda. And so, yeah, and it all speaks to American exceptionalism. It all comes back to American exceptionalism because the corporate media, the New York Times, CNN, these forces... Are the information arms of American exceptions? They're trying to convince people that everything that is not them is not journalism. It's de- it's it's illegitimate. It should not be considered relevant. And that just further, I think, stokes anger in the media because people want to hear something different now. People don't want to hear well. Okay, yeah, let's vote for the Democrat. Okay, let's vote for the Republican. Okay, yeah, let's let's pay attention to like all these fearmongering stories that have no relevancy to people's lives. Like it's it's becoming very, you know, intensely uh it's becoming very intensely rejected by, by the vast majority of people and, and to the point where the respectable media isn't so respectable anymore. And they know it. And that's why there's constant claims that it's being attacked and it's being undermined and that they are um, that they are essentially some kind of stewards of democracy. Right. What is it? The Jeff Bezos on Washington Post claims itself to be, uh, uh, you know, the 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 paper of record for democracy. The slogan is like democracy dies in darkness. It's like, dude, you're literally the darkness. Like you're literally <laughs> the thing that's <laughs> propagandizing and all, like, like that's that's what the Washington Post is. Um, and the effect of the suppression of independent media is that it does do exactly what happened in 2016, which is it does empower people to the right because surprise, surprise, the algorithms love the fascists. They love, (laughs) they love them. It, it, you know, I mean, look at this dude, Ben Shapiro, like, look how big people like that can get because the algorithm works in their favor.
0: Uh, I think the point that you, um, mentioned about uh, the these differing um news outlets being arms of the of the capitalist state and what they'd like. Um to paraphrase Nierera and what he said about um American political parties, um the United States has an official, you know, state media channel, uh, but in typical American extravagance they have like seven of them, not just one. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah um other than that uh there's a lot of other points the book is really good there's a a few things that i don't we won't have time to touch on today uh which was the for example the concept of uh, american aid and its actual real purposes um the the idea of you know uh policing in the african-american communities and we could have tied that into the the general point of fascism is being is imperialism turned inwards um the the nonsense about human rights and the white saviorism of oh you know we're coming to bring freedom and democracy whatever those are there's a lot of excellent um discussions going on in the book that sadly i think um well, we won't have time for just right now but uh to, to to move on to something a bit more positive let's say um what is or do you have something that you yourself are hopeful about something that you know in the future because of course we're going to have difficulties and challenges we're going to face but something that you feel uh, is going to come in a positive sense within the coming months or years or even decades.
1: Yeah, well, at the time of writing this book, I wasn't really there, but a lot of my work now focuses on this multipolar world that's developing and the rise of China, the rise of Russia. But I have mostly focus on China. I was able to go right before the pandemic for a couple of weeks. I I was able to see kind of what's been going on there. And I do believe that one of the most positive things that's happening right now is is the U.S.'s decline, and not because of all the suffering that it's imposing upon people. I'm not an accelerationist. There, It is true that these endless wars and endless austerity is worsening conditions for so many. But at the same time, what has happened is that there is this alternative that has grown uh, stronger and stronger. And while it isn't sort of, I guess, how should I say textbook uh classical marxism so to speak it is a real break from imperialist hegemony so you do have you know china developing on its own terms and getting so strong so economically developed that now it has the capacity to build deep relationships not just bilateral relations but these real multipolar multilateral relationships that have far-reaching impacts around the world like the Belt and Road Initiative right we just had Cuba, Nicaragua, Syria these countries that are targeted by imperialism now they have a real option economically to uh, uh, escape some of the perils of sanctions and continue their own sovereign paths and self-determined paths for socialism and and economic development and and their own political vision for for their societies. And I think that that is extremely critical and important. And one of the interesting things about this moment that we didn't get to talk about in the book because it was just kind of starting and now with this like new cold wars on steroids at this time is that this real uh, desperate attempt to uh, demonize Russia and China, especially China, is all about how now there isn't just one option in the world. There isn't just one country that uh, is dominating, right? That That is a hegemon. Now there's multiple countries that can kind of shape uh, the world situation uh, for the better in a lot of ways, right? So you have you know, uh, attempts by the United States to try to intervene in countries and you'll have Russia and China step up and say no and you'll have this publicly happen. Uh, And I think that that's very positive. So one hope that I have, and, and you know, with things like poverty alleviation in China and the ways that socialist countries like Cuba have handled the pandemic, I think all of these things really give us an example of what it means to appreciate the contradictions of the world situation of the class struggle and gives us opportunities to foster real solidarity because that was the whole point of the book is to forward a vision of internationalism and solidarity and I think now this moment speaks to that more than ever when you do have this conflict that the United States is Fomenting with China, and you do have divergent paths of economic political development happening on the world stage. It's an, it's not it's called not called the new Cold War for nothing. The US and the West literally believe, and in a lot of ways, they are right, that China and the countries that are allied with China have different plans for things. <laughs> have the pl- they, they, they don't want to go up in flames in a smoldering nuclear climate like Holocaust. That's not what they want, right? How, how dare they? <laughs> exactly, right? How, so How dare they
0: have the audacity of wanting to develop on their own terms? And, exactly. <laughs> and, that's majority,
1: and that's a majority of humanity. So with that said, like we have an opportunity to really develop a global class war uh, and learn how to do that amid... Contradictions amid the problems within our own society and I think within the United States, I should say, uh, because I am the American um, that that opens up opportunities. And I do think that in this time of decline, we haven't really seen it. The United States has for so long been a hegemon or always developing uh, right like its capitalist system has had almost uh, 200 years uh, more than 200 years of development in the pathward in terms of growth and you know different stages now it's on a decline there really isn't anywhere else it's going to go there's only austerity only monopolization only uh, the uh, wrath of finance capital and militarism left at its disposal and that means that whatever movements happen in the United States, which there will be, it will require more intense and intentional internationalist activity. And that's because it will be uh, a fact, and it already is happening, that a lot of these questions that the, uh, that China, that Russia are trying to address are uh, essentially placing them in the vanguard of these struggles because the US is in the west is in no position to address them at this time short of a monumental uh, class struggle that just isn't here yet but i think the world situation gives us some reason to believe that it could be here uh, in the relative near future hopefully in time before the nuclear climate <laughs> holocaust.
0: <laughs> <laughs> exactly right. But yeah, but that's that's a very interesting perspective. Uh, I really would like to thank you for, for everything that you had to say today for, for us and those that listened. Um, it's a shame that we couldn't actually do justice to the, the quality of the book. We touched on very surface, uh, like we barely scratched the surface uh, of, of um, the, the ideas that are expressed in the book. That's why, again, this is probably the third time I'm recommending it. People go, go and read it. Um like I mentioned, the, the Parenti-like praise was not unwarranted. I do really think it was a Parenti-level book. Um, so do go and check it out. Um, but with that said, uh, we really would like to thank you for coming on. Um, could you tell people, again, uh, where they can find your
1: stuff um, and, and how, how they can reach you? Sure. So the only the only criticism I had of this whole thing is I didn't get to hear JT and you got Nick's Sexy voices in this uh, conversation. But you know what? I'll let it go. I'll let it go. Maybe next time. Uh, <laughs> it's it's the format, man. I know. I know. Uh, but yeah, so in terms of where you can find me, um, you can find me weekly, usually at Black Agenda Report. You can find me on Twitter at Spirit of Ho, Spirit of H-O. Uh, you can find me on YouTube. at Lovely left- name, by the way. Yeah, Spirit of Ho Chi Minh, baby. That's, that's <laughs> a huge inspiration for me. So... <laughs> You can find me there on Twitter, you can find me on YouTube at The Left Lens, and you can subscribe to my work if you appreciate it and, and uh, want to support it. You can uh, do that at patreon.com slash dannyhaifong and chroniclesofhaifong.substack.com where I put all of my work all together, wh- whatever I'm doing, um, whether it's my own work or guest appearances on others. And uh, you can also subscribe to the Substack for free um, as well. So you don't necessarily have to subscribe to that financially. But those are the places where you could support me financially as I do this work. And yeah, no, I really appreciate all of this. I love the podcast. And I look forward to more conversations in the future. Hell yeah.
0: Well, thank you very much. Uh, this has been the... De- I can't speak. This has been the D program. <laughs> I'm hacking. Normally JT does this for us, That's why. <laughs> I'm hey. JT. I'm Yugo goblin. Like, what the fuck, guys? <laughs>
1: yeah, I'm Yugo goblin. Like. <laughs> JT will edit it out later. Yeah. Uh, and Danny, you just I'm say. I'm Danny. Editor. No. There you go, oh. Danny. Good. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Let's keep um, k- keep it like this. <laughs> keep it as a complete <laughs> shit show. I am Danny. I it. it's, like I said, it, mm. oh, fuck. Normally, JT does it. It's so smooth. Anyways, yes. Okay, we'll see you guys next time. Bye. <laughs>